I'm Tim Malloy from Movie Maker, and today my guest is Kevin Abrams, director of the crackling new documentary, I Got a Monster, about the crooked cops of Baltimore's Gun Trace Task Force. I don't mean crooked like they bent the law to catch criminals, I mean they became criminals. Members of the task force were responsible for getting illegal guns off the streets, but the doc lays out a modus operandi in which some of them stopped people who seemed like they had money, pulled them from their cars, planted guns or drugs, and then tossed their houses in search of loot. To be honest, I didn't know much about the Baltimore Gun Trace Task Force prior to seeing I Got a Monster, which Abrams made in collaboration with the authors of a book of the same name, Baynard Woods and Brandon Soderbergh, but it very quickly pulls you into the story of the fast-moving, plainclothes task force led by Sergeant Wayne Jenkins, who was once presented as a hero cop who rescued fellow officers during the 2015 Baltimore riots that were sparked by the death of Freddie Gray in police custody. But now Jenkins is serving a 25-year sentence after pleading guilty to charges including racketeering, robbery, and falsifying records. More than a dozen officers have been convicted in the scandal since 2017. Baltimore has paid out more than $20 million in settlements, and hundreds of cases have been thrown out because of doubts about officers' testimony. This all may sound familiar if you saw last year's HBO David Simon series, We Own This City, in which John Bernthal, yes, the Punisher, plays Wayne Jenkins. I hadn't seen it, as will become apparent in the conversation you're about to hear, but maybe I will now. Here's my interview with I Got a Monster director Kevin Abrams, whose film is out this Friday, March 10th, and you can stream it wherever you like. I really dug the movie. I thought it was very, very, very well done, just like from a cinematic standpoint and also from a story that I hadn't heard. Um, Just very well made. Thank you. Thank you. And so the first thing I wanted to ask is just how did you become a filmmaker? God, I don't remember when there was another version of something. I grew up like all of us, obsessed with movies, started with Big Trouble in Little China and then Eventually, through a lot of weird interactions and friends, I got introduced to the Maisel Brothers, which took my career into a different place altogether. Salesman became the prototypical film that I always wanted to make and give me shelter. So I got into documentary when I graduated undergrad. And then uh, after some years working as a camera assistant and a sound recordist, I got into AFI and their directing program and things just sort of moved from there. Um, after I graduated, set up a production company and sort of sidetracked into a lot of education content. And about four years ago, with this being the first film I directed, we decided as a me and my partner that we just wanted to work on socially conscious things that told narrative stories in, a, in an interesting way. So you're a sound recordist. What else were you besides a sound recordist? Uh, camera assistant, shot tons of Second Union on a lot of PBS docs, worked on stuff for Discovery. Initially, I wanted to be a cinematographer, and then I realized that I am far too much a, a social gadfly to just sit there and <laughs> behind a camera and not talk to people. <laughs> uh, so how did you come across this story? I understand you were working on the film the same time that the writers were working on the book. Yeah, so one of the writers, Baynard Woods, is a, a long, dear friend of mine. We had another project that we worked together. We just stayed in contact throughout the years. They were tracking this story locally over, God, a three to five year period, and they decided that they were going to do a book. So they reached out and they're like, listen, we're putting this together. We also think there's a documentary in here. Would you be interested in working with us on it? And luckily, it all worked out. We introduced us to our agents. They sold the book pretty much immediately. And as that was going in parallel, we just started filming. 
and we're able to use a lot of each other's resources. So a lot of the stuff that we have, they use the transcripts from and vice versa. So it was a really good tag teaming effect to, to get the big story under, under sort of a manageable way. Hmm. How did you know Boehner? He was introduced to a friend of, through a friend and we had a really funky uh, fiction TV show that we worked on about, about voodoo in the South based on a real historical character. And we just were very simpatico as personalities and he's a really cool guy. And we just stayed in touch. Uh, can you just give an overview how you would describe, I know how I would describe the movie, but I, I imagine you have a more succinct, better pitch than I do at this point. Yeah, um, so our film chronicles the rise and the fall of the Gun Trace Task Force, which was a very, I guess, notorious task force in the Baltimore Police Department that recently got convicted of terrorizing the locals. And what we do through our film is we use the stories of the locals to illuminate the dangers of unsupervised policing and in specific, the unsupervised task force policing. And the sort of antagonist is Wayne Jenkins. Um, yeah. This task force. And mm -hmm. the guy who really brings him down is, I, I believe it's Ivan Bates, the defense attorney. Correct. Yeah. So Ivan is a, was an incredibly welcoming person. He was working as a defense attorney at the time and he was getting all these cases and one of the major trends that he was seeing in all these is that Wayne Jenkins was the arresting officer and just through the matter of looking at the cases more closely hearing the testimonies of the people that were hiring him I began to recognize a really gross irregularity in the procedures used to arrest these people and how a lot of the stories weren't matching up and he decided at that point when he was seeing all these different people that he was actually going to go and find people specifically that were arrested by Wayne Jenkins and offer to take their case. He would give them discounts. We give them all these different sort of benefits if they would say yes, all in the hope to show the consistent bad behavior of this one cop. Yeah. And it paid off. He eventually got Jenkins taken down. And as um, you know, a, a strange little footnote, now he's the state's attorney for Baltimore. So he was just recently elected and he's right now fighting the fight in public office. It's a cool story where, I mean, I don't know if you, I hesitate to say good guys because it's a documentary and, you know, there's a, the idea that everyone should be neutral, but in this case, I think he's clearly the good guy. Um, yeah. And it's a, a cool case of the good guys just winning in every way um, because not only does he get into office and get to sort of change the system, I imagine he, not to be gross about it, but he must have really cleaned up as a defense attorney too. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, we never talk that much about the specifics, but he's a very successful attorney. And I know for this, this was very much a calling. So this really wasn't money motivated. And it's seen in the people that were able to eventually trust him. And he was able to get on camera for us because they all knew that his intention and his integrity was really high. So when we, he began to provide us with some of the victims, they were really open to the idea because once again, they knew that he was doing right by them and they wouldn't put him into a bad situation. I wanted to ask about that. You got incredibly good access to people and you were able to recreate these stories by talking to everybody in every corner of these arrests. Um, you know, the supposed defendants who were actually victims. Was he the was he the key to getting all of them? I mean, did you find them all through Ivan Bates? You know, we found a, a bunch through Ivan Bates. We found it through other lawyers. Our reporters knew a ton of them because they either reported on them or 
somehow reported on people associated with them. The reporters were truly the 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 great gift in a documentarian. You know, it's you have to spend so much time trying to earn the trust of the subjects, and because they were there and they did such consistent good work about what was happening, people trusted them and they would speak to us on behalf of them. So we were really fortunate that everybody opened up the doors. Also, by the time we got involved with making the doc, the case was pretty much over. The guys were getting convicted. So the fear about what, you know, retaliation could happen was not as present as it would have been if we were actually probably chronicling it from the start. The reporters being Baynard and his partner? Yeah, Baynard Woods and Brandon Soderberg. Yeah. Um, just talking about the filmmaking, I mean, it sounds like you did have some great opportunity there in terms of gaining the trust of your subjects pretty quickly by making this relationship with them and this relationship with Ivan Bates. Um, but you also just did some very cool things cinematically um, where it seems like the people who I would consider sympathetic figures in the movie all get this similar shot where you have them just go like this and then look up at the camera and kind of look up into the light. Mm. And it's such a cool, almost signature shot. I don't think I've seen it anywhere else. Who had the idea to do that and what what purpose does it serve? Yeah, I mean, that was always my idea. And for me, it we just, I wanted when we introduced one of the victims or one of our main characters to make it feel like a chapter heading. Mm. You know, one of the films that we always use as a reference point, because initially when we got into this, we realized that this could be like a four or five hours topic because there's so much institutional stuff that goes along with the specific crime elements of the story. And we always used Robert Altman as our sort of reference point, a Nashville or something like that, that dealt with a larger tapestry of characters and talks about the system and the people within it. Um, so the idea was always to have these intros that would function as chapter headings that would allow us to know that these are significant people in the story because there's a lot of people to track and then also to just give them a moment where we really got to sit with them and look them in the eye i mean sadly one of the tricky things about this conversation is nobody would give them that time you know people assume that they were criminals so you wouldn't look at them you wouldn't take them in that's part of the unfortunate dynamic within the story is that a lot of this got ignored because the people that were victims were quote unquote, sometimes bad guys. They were previously convicted of selling drugs. They were previously convicted of possession of firearms, all these types of things that you could historically say these are bad people. And that was part of the unfortunate situation with the Gun Trace Task Force. They knew if they targeted people with criminal pasts that they would be more likely to get away with the stuff that they were doing because there was precedent. So for me, it was just like I wanted to humanize them and I wanted them to really feel significant when we got into them cinematically. Yeah, and I'm just assuming that we're both, it seems like we're both using good guys and bad guys with quotes and a lot of irony because, you know, obviously anybody can be good or bad at any time and it's very yeah. circumstantial. Um, and we see yeah. in, this, in this film that the hero, quote unquote, Wayne Jenkins turns out to be the ultimate villain of it. Yeah, I mean, the, the you know, the big tagline we used to always joke about, it's like, this is what happens when cops become robbers. So it was just like, there's always that notion of everything being inverted. The people that you initially would sort of be skeptical of prove to be the truthful people. And our, the attorneys that eventually try the case on the federal level talk about that. They're like, you would look at these people and you would suspect because of their histories and because of their circumstances that they would be lying to us. And everything that they did research-wise checked out that their stories were actually true and accurate. And that the cops, you would assume, 
would be the ones that would be accurate and truthful. All of their stuff was fabricated. So everything was an inversion in the story. One thing I like about this movie is that it works as a expose of what these cops did, but it's also just like, it kind of works as a thriller. And I don't want to be blase about that because, you know, obviously real people's lives are affected, but it is a, a pleasurable film to watch in terms of what's going to happen next. How does this con work? Um, how did they get brought down? Did you sort of want it to work as a narrative feature too? Or how did you, how did you organize it to sort of tell that there's sort I mean, of a rise and fall story? It seems like. Yeah. I mean, the film nerd to me is so thankful that you even recognize that. So thank you. Oh, <laughs> That was very much an, an intention as far as how we were structuring it, because it is such a cop story it is such a dirty cop story and there's so many thriller elements from it from how they eventually get busted by the fbi comes in at the end and all these different sort of departments trying to track and trace them whether they're going to get caught by people within the department whether they're going to get caught by family members like there's all these things and there was so much stuff we even left on the the cutting room floor our first initial assembly of this was over four hours so there's so much meat to even just the thriller elements of this that we decided to not include. But it was always with the notion of trying to give it that energy. And, and we use devices in it. We strap the camera to the front of cars. We drive down streets at 75 miles per hour to give it a little bit of those action elements. We use our drones in a bit more of a, a visceral action filmy way to try to create a little bit of that pacing so that you could feel like you were getting pulled into that story as well as having your heart hopefully touched by what the victims were going through. You also have some just amazing moments. The way that they would recreate busts, like they would do the, they would go to a scene, steal drugs and money, then set it up like they hadn't been there already and record it anew as if they were doing it for the first time and act. They would do an act out of where playing cops, doing a clean bust is just an incredibly cinematic thing that I think would play really well in a feature movie as well. And also the way that they go down the climactic scene <laughs> is incredible. Yeah. It's, it's, it's sort of amazing when you think about that. The backstory is a random wiretap that was placed on not even Jenkins, another person randomly in the, uh, the task force connected Jenkins to the corruption that that guy was involved in. They started tracking him, and then everybody realized at this point that they were all corrupted from a random just tracking of a vehicle. It's just, the math on that is pretty unbelievable. And the way that they were able to create the takedown so there wouldn't be violence, that they do it in the internal affairs office so that they would give themselves over safely. There was a lot of foresaw, forethought that went into the to the process. And yeah, to this day, we're, we're, everybody was shocked how it was able to come together in that manner. Even the FBI people, they say that they were shocked that nothing bad happened and that they were able to, quote unquote, land the plane, which was how they referred to it. Yeah. Have you given thought to turning this into a feature? I mean, it seems like a natural. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. David Simon did a, a version of the story um, that came out last year on HBO called We Own the City. Mm. which was a six-part um, series that just basically walked people through some of the overarching things of it. There's so much to this story. We talk about it all the time. I'm actually personally right now working on a, a fiction novel 
that borrows a lot of elements about this and utilizes some of the other things that we weren't able to include into uh, into the story, which is about a corrections officer that falls into the conspiracy of what's going on in this highly fictionalized on the surface, but actual Baltimore environment. Mm. So, yeah, we're, it's it's unfortunately we you know it's the gift that keeps on giving as far as what you can do story wise with it, but um there is so much there. The question after a documentary like this is, and this is sort of the debate that people have whenever there's any police corruption, do you think that these are um, particularly bad um, outlier cops, or do you think this is indicative of a larger culture? I mean, do you think that there's a lot more cases like this, or do you think there are a few more cases like this? I think there's a lot. I mean, Memphis recently is an example of something happening similar with the task force that got you know, empowered to go out and to police unchecked. And fortunately, there was a camera to record their bad behavior. You know, in Baltimore alone last year, another task force was responsible for the shooting and the questionable arrest of uh, a person that ended up getting killed. So it's there. I think it's a conversation truly about whether task force exists and if there's a way to utilize them that is effective and safe for the citizens. When you empower a group of cops to have multi-jurisdictional capabilities, you know, in Baltimore, this organization was able to go any place they wanted in the city. And this was because there was a greater mandate that said, get us guns. If we get the guns, we'll reduce the murders, which is the major crime issue that everybody in Baltimore complains about. So the question is, if you give them that power, how can you make sure that they're not abusing it? And sure. In multiple cases, and historically, just looking at Baltimore alone, we see that all these task force, unfortunately, have an incident that proves that it is a very dangerous way to maintain peace and safety in the city. A lot of times, discussions about police get sort of pushed to one of two extremes of, we need to back the blue completely, no matter what, there's a couple of bad apples. Um I heard a podcast where an ex-cop was saying that out of a, a million police officers in America, there might be a thousand bad ones, um, which would be a pretty low number uh, percentage-wise, um, versus people who just say, and I have immediate family who believe this, just get rid of police altogether. Um, where do you find where do you find yourself on the broad spectrum of ideas about improving policing in America? You know, it's, it's, it's a really great question. And, and what I keep going back to is this notion that we spoke to, and this came from a lot of the cops themselves. And the one thing I will say that I do think the ratio probably is higher than what that person said about, you know, 1,000 bad cops per million. But I also know that the good cops really take pride in being good cops. And there seems to be a really general consensus that one of the great solutions are that could change this is the notion of local policing, AKA the officer friendly approach again, where cops are forced to live back in the communities that they patrol. They can then develop relationships locally with people. There's a vested interest in maintaining the peace and safety of what's going on. And then on both sides, there's trust as opposed to animosity and skepticism. Part of the problem right now is there's been such a breakdown in, in the notions of trusts with cops for you to get that back and for people to feel like they can speak positively about them, they need to interact with them. They need to see them as human beings and vice versa. The cops need to do the same thing too. So I do think there's a lot of credence to that notion. 
And I think something as simple as that in Baltimore, a lot of the cops, most of the cops that we covered in the story didn't even live in the city. Jenkins lived in the county. He lived surrounded by middle class people. And if you look at where he lived versus what Baltimore is like, you could not have more of a night and day scenario. If he lived locally in the city and he was forced to see these people, and I think things would have been a lot different as far as either people speaking up sooner and having more of a collective voice and or him seeing that he had to treat them with a more humane eye. What do you think about the, t the talk about cops just need to be paid more and be better screened and better um, better trained? Um, and I mean, I think a lot of people don't yeah. want to be cops now. I think that's 100% legitimate, but I, you know, I think teachers should be paid more. I think nurses should be paid more. I don't, I think people in the public service specter of work that deal with stuff that is as violent as what they face, it's, it's a lot of responsibility. So the training alone is something that every one of them has to deal with. There has to be better maintenance programs for them dealing with what's going on, the PTSD of stuff. We spoke to a lot of people when we we're interviewing them that carry them daily. You know, one guy who was associated with this story, his first day of work, he had a knife pulled on him and he had to shoot somebody. Like mm -hmm. imagine your first day of work that you get put into that situation and that's how you have to manage the remainder of your career, knowing that's how day one started. So it is a challenging job, and there definitely needs to be better ways to to help the pool of selection, but also help the pool once they are in the actual department so that they are have the support systems to continue to aim for the good as opposed to aim for the bad compromise. Uh, someone makes the point in this movie, and I've heard this before, and I don't know if it's true, um, and I should probably do some reading up on it, that police modern-day policing is derived from basically um, people who would catch formerly enslaved people, um, former slave catchers. Is that true? I mean, did you find that to be? Yeah, <clears throat> that's historically accurate, especially in a place like Maryland, which was one of the states on roughly the Mason-Dixon line, you know, as much as it is now seen as a northern state during the Civil War, that was a southern state. And if you go there now, you still see the remnants of the uh, cannons pointing north in case the Union came down. So that was very much a huge component to how policing was initially created, unfortunately. And, I, and you know, it's something that needs to be remembered and talked about. Yeah. It sets up the system because at that point, you're obviously declaring a group of people criminal by nature. And there's how do you recorrect that? over time like what is the solution for saying we're no longer going to look at these people as criminals and finally ivan bates is da i haven't looked into this at all how's he doing i mean there's a conservative narrative that a lot of soft on crime da's have come in and that that's why crime is going up in la and baltimore and san francisco i don't know if that's true um mm -hmm. have you found that to be true have you found there to be any truth to that he seems to actually be committing to being harder on crime and he wants to make it tougher. He wants to come up with new legislation that makes carrying guns illegally a felony and all these different types of things that they could actually get handled over to the federal elements of the conversation. So he really wants to try to create, I think, tougher practices. Now, within the context, once again, of Baltimore, that becomes a very complicated situation because in the past, people have tried to get hard on crime, and then that leads to greater arrests, and then that leads to greater need for prisons, and the ripple effect just continues. 
and it hasn't necessarily correlated to a decrease in murder, which is really what Baltimore is aiming for, to try to lower their murder number. So I'm really interested to see what his approach sort of nuts out. I mean, I think he's a man of integrity and working with him, he's become a friend and I want him to do the best for the city. And I think he's at least starting from that place. So I'm really curious and excited to see how it pans out. I don't imagine Wayne Jenkins was super available for comment. <laughs> I don't want to spoil the movie, but um, he's, did you attempt to reach, I, I won't say any more, but did you attempt to reach out to him for comment or any of the officers on his squad? We did attempt to reach out to him. And obviously he's at a supermax prison. He was getting moved around a bunch. It was really difficult to get in touch with him. The red tape was always super complicated. Um, so, yeah, but that being said, one of the women who appears in our film, she's a BBC correspondent. She eventually was able to do an interview with him and it took her years to accomplish. So he's, uh, from what I understand, enjoying probably a bit of the bizarre recognition that's coming with his uh, training day like character that he's created for himself. What about his lawyer? I mean, I know there's this. There's sort of a there's an incredible kicker actually about who's going to represent him. But did you reach out to his lawyer to get the lawyer's side of all this? You know, we opted not to. There was a couple of reasons why we thought it would be easier to navigate without pulling red flags for other people to know that we we're telling the story. Mm -hmm. So after I realized that we couldn't get directly in touch with him, the notion of trying to bring them into the conversation seemed pretty irrelevant. We tried to reach out to family. They weren't available at all. They did not want to talk about anything. And then when we finally got the Donnie character, who's the bail bondsman, who worked directly with Wayne as the fence, we felt like he was a sufficient entry point to really understanding Wayne's psyche and specifically give us some of the more intimate elements of his personality. So, so there's, there's one side kind of the... I worked at the Associated Press for 10 years and our side would have been you need to present both the AP side would be you need to present both sides of this. Your side sounds like it's more that report repertorial adage that if one person says it's raining and one says it's not, it's not to print both sides, it's to look out the window. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. And I mean, you know, that's my goal with most of the docs that I work on. Right now I'm finishing up one about the um Afghanistan and the fall of Kabul and the resulting refugee crisis. And it's the same type of thing with that. You can obviously politicize it across multiple agendas, something that took 20 years to digest and to have an outcome, but you're not going to get any new information outside of like what you're looking at and what you're absorbing and, and concluding for yourself. So I would have loved to have Wayne in the story, but also I didn't think it was necessary to feel like we weren't doing justice by their side. We spoke to a ton of cops we spoke to people in it. We reached out to his family and a ton of people as well. And listen, they're right to say yes or no. And we always argued saying, listen, the best thing you can do to argue the case of that person is to agree to talk with us. And at that time, it was just, I think, a little too hot for people. I'm curious what happens now if we did a follow up, who'd be willing to talk? Yeah. And if people think uh, your documentary isn't fair to his side. I mean, he was convicted and is in prison. So, I mean, the, an independent court did determine that your side was correct. 
Um, yeah, and, and and the information that we're giving is is via reporters that have you know fact checked all this stuff multiple times, and we had to go through a rigorous process as well. So we wanted to lay out a story, talk about the players involved, and then really give the space to the victims to to finally be heard because that is part of the subtext of what happened. This happened because nobody listened to them. 